Good morning. Keep your Bibles open to that passage that was just read, Luke chapter 7, verses 29 through 35. That will be our text this morning. And the title for this sermon is Children of Wisdom. Children of Wisdom, taken from verse 35. The last time we were in Luke chapter 7, we saw what Jesus said about John the Baptist. And particularly important for our text this morning are verses 26 through 28, where Jesus called John the Baptist a prophet, much more than a prophet, the messenger prophesied of in Malachi chapter 3, and the greatest prophet. And in our text this morning, we see how the people responded to what Jesus had just said about John the Baptist. Then we see a very strong rebuke from Jesus. And this text ends with a wonderful statement from Jesus in verse 35, but wisdom is justified of all her children. Before we begin to look at this text, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Lord, I pray that as we have your word open before us this morning, that you would do a work in our hearts, the Holy Spirit would quicken the word to us, or that we would be convicted from your word, that we'd be transformed by the working of your word in us. Pray that our hearts be soft and open, receptive to the working of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that as we go forward from this place, that we would not leave unchanged, that we would not let your word fall to the ground, but rather, Lord, that we would carry it with us as we go and apply it in our lives, that you may be honored and glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first, let's look at the response of the people, beginning there in verse 29. And in verses 29 and 30, we're told of three groups of people and how they responded to what Jesus had just said about John the Baptist. And the first group is all the people. Beginning in verse 29, we're told, and all the people that heard him. This is speaking of that general multitude that was following Jesus at this point in his ministry. And this group would have included people from Galilee and the surrounding regions and would have been exclusively or very nearly exclusively Jewish. And the opinion among the common Jewish people of that time was that John the Baptist was a prophet. In Luke 20, verse 6, the chief priests and the scribes, they said the people are persuaded that John was a prophet. The people believed this. They believed that John was a prophet. The common people had accepted John and his ministry. The end of verse 29 tells us that they had been baptized with the baptism of John. And John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance. The people had responded to his call to repent in preparation for the coming Messiah. Verse 29 also tells us that this group justified God. They justified God. Now we're going to examine that statement, but first let's look at the second group that's mentioned in verse 29. And the second group is publicans. Again, verse 29, all the people that heard him and the publicans. Now, the publicans were the tax collectors of the first century Roman world. Verse 29 specifically mentions publicans as a group separate from the general multitude. And why were they a separate group? We know that the publicans were particularly hated in first century Israel. We studied this in depth when we were in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus called Levi the publican to be one of his disciples. But to summarize, the publicans were hated because the Roman tax system was prone to corruption and was nearly universally abused. The common Jews believed that it was unlawful, that is, against the law of God, 
to pay taxes to the Romans. And thus publicans were seen as people who despised God's law. Jewish publicans were also seen as traitors, having sided with the occupiers, the Romans, instead of their own people, the Jews. And they may be mentioned separately in this text because though they were with that general multitude following Jesus at this time, they were still despised and shunned. Jewish publicans were also seen as one of the preeminent classes of sinners in first century Israel. They're sometimes used as a figure of the worst sort of sinner imaginable to the first century Jewish mind. Remember the parable that Jesus gave of the Pharisee praying in the temple. And he said, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. And then listen to this list that he gives. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. And along with the general multitude, the publicans, this group that is viewed as the worst type of sinners, they also justified God. They justified God. What does it mean to justify God? To declare that God is just, that God is right, that God is true. This is a response of faith to the revelation of God. This is worship. The highest form of worship. Man freely confessing the truth, the goodness, and the righteousness of God. And if a response of faith to the revelation of God justifies God, then what does that mean about a response of unbelief? Unbelief is a form of blasphemy. It's refusing to give God the glory, the honor, the praise, the worship that He is due. We live in a postmodern world where people say things like, well, if you believe the gospel... And that means something to you, great. It doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't make any difference if I believe it. It doesn't make any difference if you believe it. The gospel, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is how God has revealed himself to humanity. A response of faith justifies God. A response of unbelief to the gospel heaps up for yourself further condemnation. The people and the publicans... They justified God. When God justifies a man, something changes in that man because he was not just before. And when man justifies God with a true confession from his heart that God is just, that God is right, that God is true, then once again something has changed. But it is not God. God is just, God is right, God is true. Whether you and I confess that or not, it doesn't make any difference to the intrinsic nature of God. But when a man truly justifies God, once again, it is man who has changed. It takes divine revelation to bring sinful man to a place where he justifies God. In our text, we are specifically told why the common people and the publicans justified God. The end of verse 29 tells us, that they had been baptized with the baptism of John. Again, the baptism of John was an outward symbol of repentance. These people who justified God had heeded the call of John the Baptist to repent and to prepare themselves for the coming Messiah. They had accepted the ministry of John. They justified God. They were baptized with the baptism of John. Well, the third and final group that's mentioned 
in these verses is found in verse 30. The Pharisees and the lawyers. The Pharisees and the lawyers. These were the religious leaders of the time. Now specifically, the Pharisees were a group that was zealous for the formal keeping of the law. The term Pharisees comes from an Aramaic word which means to separate. They were separated by their manner of life from the general public. They were known for their high level of discipline and their stringency as they sought to follow the law. And they were not so much concerned about the righteousness of any given action, but rather its formal correctness when measured against their understanding of the law. And they became formal, external, and mechanical in their religion. Their approach to the law did not lead to confession of sin and humility, but rather a proud self-righteousness. But because of their discipline and their separation from the common people by manner of life, they were admired and even held to be a standard of righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5, verse 20. Now, Jesus was not teaching that they were righteous, but that is how they were viewed by the common people. And Jesus said, it isn't enough. Your righteousness has to exceed that. You have to do better than the Pharisees. Jesus routinely and strongly rebuked the Pharisees, called them hypocrites. This is the entire theme of Matthew chapter 23. Seven times in that chapter, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's who the Pharisees were. Now let's look at the lawyers. This word is fairly common in Luke's gospel. He uses it six times. It's used once in Matthew and twice in Paul's epistle to Titus. But this term lawyer is interchangeable with a much more common term that we find in the gospels, scribe. Scribe. The lawyers or the scribes, they had various roles in Israel that varied from the teaching of the law in the local synagogues to copying the scriptures to writing legal documents to serving in the Sanhedrin. A lawyer could be a Pharisee, though not all lawyers were Pharisees. But like the Pharisees, they were far more concerned about their appearance before men than their righteousness before God. And thus they were often rebuked by Jesus along with the Pharisees. Now in our text this morning, in verse 30, the Pharisees and lawyers are mentioned together and we're told that they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. They rejected the counsel of God against themselves. The common people and even the publicans justified God or they declared or demonstrated that God was just. In contrast, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves. This is, or it should be, a terrifying statement. What does it mean to reject the counsel of God? God had clearly revealed His will to them. Jesus preached repentance. John the Baptist had preached repentance. The law of God, which they claimed to revere, convicts men of sin and calls men to repentance. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3. They knew what God required of them, but they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. 
And their rejection was clearly demonstrated by their actions. The end of verse 30 tells us that the Pharisees and lawyers were not baptized with the baptism of John. They did not repent. God called them to repentance, but they hardened their hearts and they continued on in their sin. So here we have the common people and even the publicans who had accepted the ministry of John the Baptist. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. And at first glance, this appears to bring reproach upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, who had come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus, who was the Messiah. In their ministry, they seemed to only be able to gather the common people. Or worse, they seemed to be only able to gather the uncommonly bad people. Like the publicans. Those who had a reputation for holiness and for knowledge, they rejected Jesus. But woe unto us if we judge the gospel by the approval of men. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27-29. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. To what end? Why has God done this? That no flesh should glory in His presence. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And the true gospel demands humility. The gospel of Jesus Christ leaves no room for man to glory in himself. And those who place their confidence in men, in man's ability to be righteous, to satisfy God on their own, they will never humble themselves as the gospel demands, and thus they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this was the position of the Pharisees and the lawyers in our text. Jesus rebuked them because of their rejection. In verses 31-35, through Jesus delivered a strong rebuke. Jesus began this rebuke in verse 31 with the question, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation, and to what are they like? Who was Jesus rebuking? The men of this generation. And it's clear from the context that Jesus was specifically rebuking those who had claimed to reject the ministry of John the Baptist because he was too ascetic, and who went on to reject the ministry of Jesus because they claimed his life was too loose, too lavish. They had taken a hypocritical position and Jesus rebuked them for it. Jesus compared them to petulant children in verse 32. They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned to you and you have not wept. The picture Jesus gives here is of whiny children who will not be satisfied. They are not getting their way, they're not getting what they want, and they're not happy about it. We piped for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not weep. Why aren't you happy? Why aren't you sad? They can't be satisfied. And when children act this way, we understand. They're young, they're, un- they're immature. It takes patience and child training and discipline to help children mature beyond this sort of behavior. But Jesus was not talking about child training. He was illustrating the attitude of the men of his generation. Grown men 
the Pharisees and the lawyers, religious leaders, people who knew better. And Jesus said, you're acting like children and not well-behaved children. And in case there was any question about what Jesus was referring to, he told them directly in verses 33 and 34. Look at verse 33. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a devil. Again, John the Baptist, he led a very ascetic life. He lived in the wilderness. He wore rough clothing. And in particular, Jesus draws attention to his diet. He did not eat bread or drink wine. Rather, he ate the food found in the wilderness where he had his ministry. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that he ate a diet of locusts and wild honey. And how did the religious leaders respond to the ascetic life of John the Baptist? They looked at it and they said, He has a devil. They did not like John's message. They did not like John's ministry. They did not like John's methods. And they rejected the counsel of God delivered to them through God's prophet John. In their sin, in their blindness, in their hardness of heart, they said of John, he has a devil. He's demon-possessed. Did John have a devil? Was he demon-possessed? No. In fact, the exact opposite is true. John had the Holy Spirit upon him as a prophet of God. Yet his ministry was rejected. Because men love darkness because their deeds are evil. This is the nature of man. This is the power of sin, the hold that it has upon men. The religious leaders had rejected John the Baptist and called him demon-possessed because of his manner of life, or at least that's what they claimed. His life was too ascetic to please them. Well, what about Jesus? Look at verse 34. The Son of Man, there's Jesus referring to himself, the Son of Man is come, eating and drinking, And ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-biber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Unlike John, here comes Jesus, and Jesus came eating and drinking. John ministered in the wilderness, and Jesus, he ministered in both the wilderness and in cities. Jesus wore nice clothing. When he was in populated areas, Jesus often went to weddings and to feasts. Several times when he was in the wilderness, he miraculously provided good food for his followers. Jesus ate normal and even fine, good quality food. If some had truly been offended by John's ascetic lifestyle, then certainly they would be pleased with the lifestyle that Jesus led. Whew, man, John the Baptist. That's, that's a hard life that he leads. That's too harsh. But thankfully, we see in the life of Jesus that there's some some liberty here. But no. Like petulant children who cannot be satisfied, they criticized Jesus at this point as well. They called Jesus a gluttonous man and a wine-biber, a friend of publicans and sinners. This account is the only time these words are used in the New Testament, gluttonous and wine-biber. Our text in the parallel, parallel account of this event In Matthew 11, verse 19, are the only time these words are used, and they're used as an accusation against Jesus Christ. They said of Jesus, he's gluttonous. He eats too much. He's a wine-biber. He drinks too much. And then they go on to make this accusation. He is a friend of publicans and sinners. A friend of publicans and sinners. 
If you believe that you can attain righteousness on your own, and that you have attained some degree of righteousness on your own, then you will look down your nose on those you deem to be unrighteous. They have not worked as hard as you. They are not as committed as you. They are not as serious as you. They are not as religious as you. They are not as good as you. And you will shun them because you believe that they are sinners and you are righteous. This is what the Pharisees and the lawyers did. This is how they lived. And when they saw the life of Jesus, they said, boy, he must not be a good man. Because look at the company he keeps. He is a friend of publicans and sinners. But in reality, Jesus Christ was the only person in all of history who was ever in the situation that the Pharisees and lawyers thought they were in. He was the only person who has ever lived who was perfectly righteous and surrounded by sinners. And what did Jesus do? Praise God, He was a friend to sinners. He lived among us. He ministered to us. And He died for us. Never have sinners known such a friend. This accusation against Jesus, far from dishonoring Him, will be a point of honor and praise and glory to God for all of eternity. Now the Pharisees and the lawyers, they claim to reject John because he is too ascetic. They claim to reject Jesus because he was too loose and liberal in his life. But the reality is, as Paul talks about in Romans 1, verses 22, excuse me, 21 and 22, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And this comparison that we see between the lives of Jesus and John the Baptist, it demonstrates the goodness of God, the long-suffering nature of God, and God's mercy towards sinners. Consider this. What lawful method has God not used to draw sinners? Has God delivered warnings? Yes. Harsh and terrible warnings. The pages of Scripture are full of examples that warn us to flee from the wrath to come. Has God shown kindness and mercy? Yes. Every day that God suffers this sinful world to go on is a demonstration of mercy and patience beyond our comprehension. God promises deliverance. God promises rest. God promises reward. God sent austere prophets like John the Baptist to deliver stern warnings. God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who came eating and drinking and was a friend of sinners. But what does sinful man do with the goodness of God? In God's rebuke and in God's blessing, sinful man turns from God. From the rod of discipline and from the staff of comfort, sinful man turns and flees from a holy God. If there were any way for sinful man to come to God apart from grace, it would happen. It would happen to everyone. If it were possible, God would do whatever man needed. God has left no stone unturned, no avenue unexplored, no effort spared in giving people reason and opportunity to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. And God has done this not to satisfy His curiosity, 
but to humble us. To show us that if a person will be saved, he must be saved by the grace of God. There is no other way. It must be by grace. It must be a work that God does in the heart of man because man, given every reason to turn from his sin, does not, but presses deeper and deeper into it. Salvation must be of grace. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, boy, I I want to be saved. But I don't know how. Maybe you've been in church for a long time. And you can say, well, I've heard that I must repent of my sin and believe, but what does that mean? How can I do that? What must I do? I don't want to discourage you, so please listen very carefully. I want to make this clear. There is nothing for you to do. No formula you can follow, no good deeds you can accomplish, no ordinances of the church that you can partake in, baptism or the Lord's Supper. None of these things can save you. There is no work that you can do. The work of salvation was finished at the cross of Jesus Christ. How can you be saved? Only by the grace of God. Do you see from God's Word that you are a hopeless sinner? Do you see from God's Word that Jesus Christ is your only hope? Then come to Jesus Christ. Precious words of Jesus found in John 6.37. There Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. God is pleased with a simple prayer. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18, 13. That's a response of faith to the revelation of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a response that justifies God, as we saw in verse 29. And look at how Jesus concludes this rebuke in verse 35 of our text. But wisdom is justified of all her children. The Pharisees and the lawyers, they believed that they were the children of wisdom. They believed they had cornered the market on wisdom. They believed that not only were they the possessors of wisdom, but they were the arbitrators of wisdom. Listen to this exchange that's found in John chapter 7, verses 45 through 49. Then came the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? Referring to Jesus. So here are these officers, these guards there in the temple, and they come to the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who are there, the chief priests. And those chief priests and Pharisees, they ask the guards, Why have you not brought Jesus? You're supposed to bring him to us. Why did you not seize him and bring him? And the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. We've never heard anyone talk like Jesus talks. We've never heard anyone say the sort of things that Jesus is saying. Then answered the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? And then listen to this. Here's what they said. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on Him? But this people, referring to the common people, this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. And so their claim was that the people who were generally positive toward the ministry of Jesus at that time Their claim was that they only were receptive toward Jesus because they did not know the law as well as they did, the religious leaders. Again, they said, the people who knoweth not the law are cursed. We have wisdom, and they do not. 
And in their so-called wisdom, they rejected both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. But though the wisdom of God be slandered and maligned and abused, it cannot be defiled, it cannot be rendered ineffective, and it cannot be stopped. The wisdom of God is seen as foolishness by the world. The first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It's foolishness. How often do men look upon the wisdom of God and call it foolishness? We see it in our text. John the Baptist, he abstained from eating bread and drinking wine. Foolishness. Jesus came eating and drinking. Foolishness. Jesus was friends with sinners. Foolishness. The world. When I say the world, I'm referring to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. When they're confronted with the wisdom of God, they reject it. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It's foolishness. They call it foolishness. They despise the wisdom of God. But what does Jesus say in this text? Wisdom is justified of or by all her children. The children of God are and will be saved through the wisdom of God. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, the Word of God says, It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And again, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. The power of God unto salvation. The wisdom of God is clearly revealed to be the wisdom of God in or through the salvation of God's children. And notice that word all that's found there in verse 35. All her children. All God's children will be saved. And although some resist the wisdom of God, like the Pharisees and lawyers in this text, they will not stop the wisdom of God from perfectly accomplishing all that God has intended for it to accomplish. God's work of salvation will not be stopped. It cannot be stopped. And any accusation that's made against God's plan of salvation is shown to be hollow and baseless, as God's wisdom is revealed in the salvation of His people. And God is glorified in this. How is the wisdom of the gospel demonstrated? How is it proven? Not by logic and reasoning, not by man's labor or man's wisdom, but the power of God working through the gospel to bring about the salvation of God's people. And Jesus says, wisdom is justified of all her children. Are you a child of wisdom? Have you been born again? Are you saved? If you can say yes, then it is only by the grace of God. It's not a result of any work that you have done, but of grace that God has provided through Jesus Christ. And as believers, as we leave, we need to leave with two key areas of application from this text. First, Rejoice in the salvation God has provided. How wide is God's mercy? How deep is His love? How great is His wisdom? How marvelous are His works? 
And the greatest manifestation of all these things that we can see is our salvation. He has saved us for His glory. Justify God in your salvation. Praise Him. Honor Him. Glorify Him. Rejoice in the salvation that God has provided. And then second, live your life in such a way as to not bring shame and reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are a child of God, made so by the power and wisdom of God. And your testimony... Your salvation, it testifies of the power and wisdom of God. And as we live our lives, may our confession match the confession found in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. That always be at the forefront of our minds. I am crucified with Christ. I died in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loveth me and gave himself for me. By the grace of God, may we measure every action, every thought, every attitude in our hearts by the salvation that God has worked on our behalf. If I do this thing, will it glorify God who has redeemed me? Or will it bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ? Jesus told those who had rejected the gospel, who had hardened their hearts towards the gospel, He told them that wisdom is justified of all her children. God's wisdom is demonstrated in the salvation of His people. If you're saved, your salvation demonstrates the wisdom and the power of God. Woe unto us if we bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ by the way we live our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what is revealed here as Jesus responded to the men of His generation. And Lord, may we not consider these things flippantly. Lord, may we be in awe and in wonder at the salvation You have brought, at Your revelation. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who is not a Christian, that they would be convicted. As we see in this text, Your goodness Your goodness in warning us of judgment to come. Your goodness in providing a way of salvation. Lord, may we not continue on hard-hearted. May we not blaspheme You with the response of unbelief. But to a work of grace in our hearts, we pray, Lord. Draw those here to salvation. And Lord, we pray that if we are in Christ, that we would be in awe and in wonder at the salvation that You have brought. And realizing that none of this stands upon our work, but upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we go forward and lead our lives, Lord, help us to keep in mind that we are representatives, giving testimony to the world of the wisdom and the power of God. May we be mindful of this as we go out into our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.